Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. He screamed in my face. He shoved me in front of the kids. He's thrown things across the room where the kids and I were standing. He's punched a hole in the wall. If things really don't go his way, I feel he can be very unstable and unpredictable. Marriage. It can be complicated, no doubt. Unfortunately, they don't always work out either. In fact, that age-old statistic still rings true today. One that says that about half of first-time marriages ultimately result in divorce. So hey, at least you've got a 50-50 shot. That's not so bad. Regardless, it takes a lot to say, I do. At least, it should anyway. It's a huge commitment after all. And again, for some, maybe it isn't that complicated. And love just comes naturally. But even the strongest marriages can dissolve. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. The kids, the house, the cars, the money. These things can all bring stress to a marriage. And when an individual feels they might lose some of the things they've worked so hard for as a result of divorce, well, that's when some people tend to show their true colors. On Thursday, February 23, 2023, 41-year-old mother of three, Rebecca Bleefnick, failed to pick up her boys from school. After hearing this, her father, Bill, became very concerned, and so he decided to conduct his own welfare check and to visit her at her home. It, it sounded like something that I needed to check out on my own, so I jumped in the car and drove over to the Bleefnick's house. After making the nearly 20-minute drive to his daughter's house located at 2528 Kentucky Road in Quincy, Illinois, Rebecca's father, Bill, pulled into the driveway and realized something wasn't right almost immediately. Before I got out of the car, I looked at the front of the house and I noticed that the front door was open, meaning the inside door, the heavy wooden door that was there was open and Becky always kept that closed. So it, it kind of set off an alarm to me. So I went into the house and I called her name out and I got no answer. So I walked down the hallway to the attached garage door, opened it up and looked to see if her car was there. Rebecca's car was there and Bill's stomach dropped. He couldn't make sense of why she wasn't answering when he called out to her. But then he remembered. His daughter hadn't been feeling well as of late. So Bill had a slight sense of relief in that moment thinking perhaps Rebecca was simply asleep in her bed. He then made his way upstairs to see if that was in fact the case. I ran up the stairs, and since she supposedly was sick, I went to the bedroom to see if she was laying down, didn't see anything in her bedroom, went into the attached bathroom. Instead of finding his daughter there in bed, Bill turned the corner into Rebecca's master bathroom, only to encounter every parent's literal worst nightmare. And that's when I found her body lying on the floor. She looked like she was dead. So I, out of reflex, I went to check to see if she had any heartbeat. I picked up her arm, but rigor mortis had already set in. At around 3.30 p.m., Bill panicked after finding his daughter deceased. He tried to call 911, but realized he had left his phone at home in his rush to get to Rebecca's house. He immediately ran next door to one of the neighbor's houses, at which point Bill was able to notify police. And I asked if I could use the, the phone, their phone, um, and I called 911. The initial dispatch call went out for an ambulance, as well as one police unit to provide support for what at the time had been categorized as a potential suicide. At 3.33 p.m., Officer Hermsmeyer of the Quincy Police, along with another rookie officer that he was field training that day, cautiously entered the Bleefnik home to investigate and clear the scene before releasing the body to paramedics. He entered the upstairs master bedroom and immediately realized this was no suicide. 
that bedroom, did you notice anything that made you believe that this was not a possible suicide? Yeah, I did. Tell me what you noticed. There were several, approximately six to seven spent shell casings on the ground, on the floor, uh, in the bedroom. And why would that mean to you that that might not be a suicide, officer? Sing, uh, suicides are typically a one-shot. Upon entering the room, Officer Hermsmeyer immediately noticed clear evidence that some type of desperate struggle had occurred right there at the doorway. The wooden casing surrounding the master bedroom door had been badly damaged, and large splinters littered the surrounding floor, as if the door had been kicked or forced open in some way. There's damage to the door and pieces of the wooden frame on the ground. It appeared the door had been broken into, kicked in, pushed in? Yes. As Officer Hermsmeyer crossed the threshold and entered the bedroom, he noticed a cell phone behind the open door, pinned against the wall. It appeared as though Rebecca likely had it in her hands at the very moment the intruder forced his way inside. Clearly, something terrible had occurred in this exact spot, so he cautiously stepped around the spent shell casings and entered the master bathroom, where Rebecca's body was laying face up in the entryway. She had been brutally murdered. Her body was completely riddled with bullet holes. Officer Hermsmeyer took up a cover position upstairs while additional responding units arrived to clear the first floor and basement of the property. As he stood there over Rebecca's lifeless body, he noticed several small pieces of plastic littered atop her remains, as well as possible signs that some type of sexual assault had occurred. When you were in that bathroom, did you look at Rebecca's genital area? Yes. And when you looked at that, were you able to see her underwear? Yes. Did you make any observations of her underwear? There appeared to be some type of a towel underneath her underwear. Did the underwear appear to be pulled to either side? No. Did the underwear appear to be torn in anyway? No. Upon arrival, additional police units determined that a second-story window was the killer's likely point of entry. Broken glass was present as well as pry marks around the frame consistent with some type of crowbar. The window that the killer entered through was the bedroom of one of the victim's sons. At the time, all three of her children were staying at her estranged husband's house just up the road. Investigators also noticed a broken lawn chair outside, just below the broken window. It appeared as though the intruder had hoisted himself up onto the second-story overhang terrace using the chair in order to break in. There was also a partial muddy footprint found on the upstairs carpet, directly in front of that window where the killer first stepped foot inside the house. The autopsy later determined Rebecca was killed in the early morning hours that Thursday and had been deceased for roughly 14 hours before her body was discovered. It was eventually revealed that she'd been shot a total of 14 times from close range, 9 to the stomach, 3 to her right arm, and 2 to her left hand at least one of which was believed to have been a defensive wound. One of the rounds also struck Rebecca's spinal cord, effectively paralyzing her. Going down um, her abdomen area, basically from the lower rib margin to um, her pelvis area, uh, there were um, five more gunshot wounds, kind of in a linear downward pattern. Um, they, were, they were circular, consistent with gunshot wounds. One of them... Um, went through the spine and then actually lodged in the spine, so it got the spinal cord in her back, and the rest of them exited. Um, they went through her intestines. Um, they caused a large amount of intestinal bleeding. Um, they caused intestinal gas to form. The bacteria went into her abdomen, um, and she basically did not have any, she barely had any blood in her blood vessels. Sadly, it appeared as though Rebecca was more than likely alive for the majority of the attack, and could have been even minutes after the killer had fled. The results of the autopsy suggested that she was more than likely struggling to breathe throughout, as one bullet entered below her breast and punctured her right lung. Near the shell casings in the bedroom were those mysterious bits of plastic that were on the floor surrounding Rebecca's body, as well as on top of it. Those turned out to be shredded pieces of plastic from an Aldi's shopping bag, believed to have been part of some type of makeshift silencer fashioned by the killer. There were also even more shell casings found in the adjacent bathroom, 
under a bath mat and next to Rebecca's body. The trail of evidence showed the killer's likely path, indicating that whoever had done this followed his victim as she struggled and fell into the bathroom. It was clear that Rebecca was then shot several more times as she lay helplessly on the tile floor. Interestingly enough, of the 14 gunshots fired, only eight shell casings were found at the scene. They were from spent 9mm rounds. This, of course, suggested that the killer made a haphazard attempt to clean up after themselves, gathering only some of the crucial evidence but leaving the rest behind. Something else that struck investigators as odd is that there wasn't much blood present at the crime scene, or at least not as much as one would expect from such a relentless killing. They soon realized that Rebecca was wearing a compression pad around her waist and compression pants at the time she was murdered. You see, she'd just undergone routine abdominal surgery a few days before, and was also found with an ice pack tucked in her drawstring as well as bandages on her stomach. The pathologist concluded that both the compression pad and pants would have prevented much of the blood from escaping, and it was ultimately confirmed that Rebecca Bleefnik died the result of internal bleeding, having suffered a slow and excruciatingly painful death. A post-mortem sexual assault kit was also administered, though it was eventually confirmed that Rebecca Bleefnik had not been violated in this way, and that the towels in her underwear were actually bandages from her recent surgery. There are still very few details being made available as Quincy police continue to investigate a woman's death. Police say 41-year-old Rebecca Bleefnik was found by a family member Thursday. Police say she had been shot multiple times. QPD Deputy Chief of Operations Michael Tyler says they have not yet narrowed the investigation to one suspect and investigators are still working the case. This episode is proudly sponsored by Fabric by Gerber Life. Look, if you're a parent, it's no secret that you have little people who rely on you. But do you have life insurance so they're protected in the event something happens to you? Well, don't wait until it's too late. With Fabric by Gerber Life, you can help protect your children's future right now and provide them with the financial security they deserve. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And life insurance can be confusing. I get it. But Fabric has flexible policies that not only fit your family, they also fit your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Trust me, if you do one thing for your children or for your family, do not wait until it's too late. There's no risk to apply and they have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Rocket Money. Okay, look, it finally happened. I got that dreaded notification from Rocket Money a few days ago that one of my recurring monthly payments had suddenly increased unexpectedly. Yeah, to the tune of like 35% for my home and auto insurance. Like, and that's usually how they get us, right? You sign up for these subscriptions or recurring automatic payments and then they jack the price up. Did you know that over 80% of people have subscriptions they've completely forgotten about? Seriously, think about how many free trials you've signed up for in your day that you've probably never canceled. You guys, that's why I love Rocket Money. Not only does it give you a high-level picture of your finances, it also alerts you anytime there's a change with one of your subscription prices. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want with just a press of a button. There's no more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. Rocket Money does all the work for you. And with over 3 million users and counting, Rocket Money customers have saved an average of $720 a year. Look, these companies are counting on you to forget that you signed up or what you're paying. Don't let that be you. Get Rocket Money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Rocketmoney.com slash invisible.
Quincy Police, three supervisors, one investigator with the Illinois State Police, several attorneys with the Adams County State's Attorney's Office, and a total of eight detectives would eventually come together in their unified attempt to solve this murder. Once warrants were obtained, Timothy Bleefnick's house was searched, the primary residence of Rebecca's estranged husband. Police first entered Tim's home on Hampshire Street on March 1st at 8 a.m., six days after Rebecca was found dead. Mr. Bleefnick was described as being, quote, very cooperative with law enforcement. He even offered up his house keys, a key fob for a gun safe, and the garage door code. Tim also informed officers on scene of a broken shotgun that was loaded in the basement. At the time, there was no warrant for Timothy Bleefnick's arrest, but that didn't mean he wasn't under close surveillance. Of course, they always suspect the husband, and in most cases, rightfully so. However, Tim seemed rather confident that he would quickly be ruled out as a suspect, believing that the search of his residence was simply due process. The sheer brutality of this murder was something that could not be ignored, and investigators believed the killing was extremely personal. 14 shots. Preliminarily, that number didn't mean much to investigators, aside from this being some type of obvious overkill. But after authorities learned that Rebecca and her ex-husband, Timothy, were married for approximately 14 years, that number started to hold a bit more significance. And as detectives were raiding the estranged husband's home, a full-blown investigation into his background, as well as the couple's marriage, was already underway. Timothy Bleefnick grew up in Decatur, Illinois. He attended St. Teresa High School and excelled academically. He was a member of the chess club, played saxophone, and was also a member of the student council. He was described as intelligent but also athletic and used his size to his advantage. At 6 foot 3 inches tall and 220 pounds by his senior year of high school, Tim became a power forward in basketball and also played varsity football. He went on to play football at Quincy University, where he became an all-star linebacker. This is also where he met his future wife, Rebecca, who attended the same university. While ironically majoring in criminal justice, Timothy Bleefnick was also awarded several athletic scholarships. In 2004, he finished with 104 tackles and helped his team, the Hawks, become the second NAIA All-American team. And by the time he graduated, Tim racked up an impressive total of 287 career tackles, which was fourth best in the school's entire history. His senior year, he was given the Mart Heinen Award, an honor provided to the most outstanding senior athlete at Quincy University. He was later inducted into the college's Football Hall of Fame. After dating through college, Tim and Rebecca got married in September of 2009. Two years after that, they had their first son. With his glory days on the gridiron behind him, Tim hung up his jersey in exchange for a suit and tie. He entered the workforce with a thriving career in sales and eventually became an executive at a company called Quincy Farms Products. Rebecca worked as an RN while raising their three boys. Her credentials included certifications in trauma as well as sexual assault examinations. She later became a traveling nurse and ended up winning some awards herself, including the Daisy Award for exceptional care and dedication to her patients. All seemed right in the Bleefnick family's personal lives, but as we all know, things often aren't as they appear. In 2020, Tim was featured as a contestant on the hit television show Family Feud. While this fact alone might seem completely random, his response to Steve Harvey's question regarding his marriage at the time certainly raised some eyebrows after Rebecca was murdered just three years later. What's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Honey, I love you, but said I do. Oh. Not my mistake. I love my wife. I'm going to get in trouble for that, aren't I? Yeah. Perhaps this was just a joke in poor taste. Either way, Tim smiled for the cameras throughout. Well, Tim, um, we have a situation. Okay. Uh, we got some, I got some good news, but I got some bad news too. Which one you want first? Uh, let's start with the bad. The bad news is there's a strong possibility that you're going to get put out this family. 
Hey, you want the good news? Sure. You need 11 points to stay in the finals. Rebecca wasn't present during filming, but Tim was eating it up while his immediate family competed for the grand prize of $20,000 at the time. And apparently, they won. Name something other than french fries you put ketchup on. A hot dog. Survey said. Tim continued to bask in the limelight, even after the family feud taping. In January of 2020, he spoke with a local media outlet regarding his upcoming television debut and what it was like going to Los Angeles to meet Steve Harvey. His suit line is very nice. He has a bunch of different ones that he wears uh, for every episode, even though they tape several in a row. And so if he finds a snazzy dresser when people really want to dress to impress to be on the show, like he, he relates to that and he likes to comment on it. You know, my older brother had this white and floral um, sport coat. And so that immediately drew Steve's eye. And then my younger brother had blue suede shoes on. Mm. And so they, they got kind of into a commentary thing, which was kind of neat. There was also a watch party at a local bar the morning the episode aired. Slow news day in Quincy, Illinois, I guess. As things seemed to only be getting better in Tim Bleefnick's life, behind the scenes, his marriage was quite literally falling apart. By this point, Tim and Rebecca had actually been separated for quite some time. And one year after the Family Feud episode aired, Tim filed for divorce in January of 2021. Tim Bleefnick moved out of the family home and relocated to the residence just up the road on Hampshire Street in Quincy. His new place was located approximately 1.3 miles away from the home on Kentucky Road, where his wife and three boys remained. According to those who knew Tim, his behavior took a strange turn around this period, as did his appearance. He grew out his hair and began posting videos of himself making awkward jokes and uploading them to TikTok. I once got attacked by a whole gang of mimes. They did some really unspeakable things to me. So at a party, my girlfriend told me to stop being an idiot. Just be yourself. I looked at her and said, you better make up your mind. Why did the Mexican man take anxiety medication? I'll wait. Think about it. Nothing? To help with Hispanic attacks. You're welcome. While this online activity doesn't prove much, other than what a weird 39-year-old guy Tim was, his wife Rebecca's digital records revealed much more than just Tim's awkward sense of humor. Investigators learned that in the months leading up to her murder, Rebecca expressed her fears on multiple occasions to loved ones, not only about her estranged husband Tim, but also about Tim's father Ray as well. He told me if I outed his dad that Ray would probably have to move then kill himself. I absolutely think he will try to take the kids sometime. This text message was sent by Rebecca in May of 2021 to her longtime friend Nicole Bateman. Rebecca and Tim's father Ray's relationship was almost as contentious as her marriage to his son. Plain and simple, Rebecca and Ray didn't like each other. And as the grandfather to their children, Ray always took his son's side and even more so during the divorce. Most importantly, Rebecca believed the two were working together to take her children from her. It has gotten to the point that I hate even going to work for fear he will secretly take off with the kids and I won't see him for a long time or ever. Digital records clearly indicated that Rebecca did not want Tim's father Ray to have any unsupervised contact with her three boys whatsoever. And the back and forth between Tim, Ray, and Rebecca only got worse from there on out. Investigators also uncovered a June 2021 Facebook message that was rather telling. This time, a conversation between Rebecca and a co-worker where she continued to voice concerns about Ray and Tim and the custody of their three children. That same month, Rebecca confided in other friends as well, saying that Tim had, quote, true mental health problems. According to those close to her, Rebecca grappled with the idea of filing for a protection order against Tim, as she was fearful of the potential repercussions for doing so. The thought has gone through my mind that I may need a restraining order. I'm definitely changing the locks as soon as I can. The only way to ensure all three sons choose him over me is to eliminate me as the choice. 
In September of 2021, Tim filed a restraining order against Rebecca, claiming that she was, quote, harassing him and that he felt threatened. Then in October, Rebecca filed one of her own. However, it was no use for either. In fact, both Tim and Rebecca's request for protection orders against each other were subsequently denied by the courts. According to Rebecca's divorce attorney, Tim was also in possession of a CZ-75 9mm handgun that belonged to her, only he wouldn't give it back. Rebecca allegedly had plans to purchase another weapon for the sole purpose of protecting herself from Tim. Records show that Rebecca did purchase a gun safer on this time while she continued petitioning for the return of her 9mm handgun via her attorney. Here's another text message sent by Rebecca to her good friend, Nicole Bateman, regarding Tim and his weapons. I am scared of his behavior and constant lies. On top of that, he has our guns and ammunition. According to a letter written by Rebecca's attorney, Tim still hadn't returned the firearm as of November 2021. Eventually, Rebecca gave up on getting it back altogether. Instead, she requested he pay the market value of the weapon, which was some $800. Unfortunately, Rebecca never got the money or the gun, and would be dead before this matter would ever be hashed out in court. In December of 2021, Rebecca filed for yet another protection order, but not against Tim. Instead, it was against the children's grandfather, Tim's dad, Ray. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Look, I've talked about some of my past traumas on the podcast before, and one unfortunate remnant of those experiences is that I've developed somewhat of a refined, screw-it-I'm-gone mentality when it comes to things not going my way. This has certainly proved helpful in many situations, but most of the time, it has not proven beneficial whatsoever. Look, therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. And that is just one toxic mindset of mine that I'm constantly working to improve. And I do so through therapy. Therapy works and it's helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It also empowers you to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma either. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So, if you're at all like me and you're not about the embarrassing waiting rooms, give BetterHelp a try. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash choir today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash choir. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. All right, I've built a lot of websites over the years. I've also used several different online tools to do so. Because if I'm being honest, I'm no coder and I need something that's fast, easy, and creates a beautiful, responsive end product. And that's why I love and have trusted Squarespace for years. Right now, you can go to squarespace.com slash choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And look, Squarespace has so many new features since we built our website at invisiblechoir.com a few years ago that we're currently rebuilding it using Squarespace. Squarespace now has what's called a Fluid Engine. It's a next-generation web design system from Squarespace, and it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. And you can design your pages for mobile or desktop precisely how you want with drag-and-drop technology. But I love Squarespace for one simple reason. It's easy, and it's the all-in-one solution for web design for entrepreneurs. In fact, some of our listeners have been asking for months about merchandise, and Squarespace now offers print-on-demand custom merch. So as the creator, we can design our products while Squarespace handles the production, inventory, and shipping, saving us time and money. There's also an integrated online store function to make everything operate together seamlessly. So whether you're an online personality or you've started a small business, check out squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir. On March 14th, 2022, Rebecca sent the following Facebook message to yet another friend. If he doesn't get his way, he may literally lose his mind. 
Months later, in August of 2022, a court order was mandated regarding the exchange of custody between Tim and Rebecca's children. The order required Tim and Rebecca to remain within three feet of their own vehicles when exchanging the children. Further investigation into Tim's online activity also revealed some pretty careless mistakes on his end. The forensic extraction of Tim's device eventually showed that in the fall of 2022, a user created a profile under the name John Smith. Messages were then sent to a seller, inquiring about a blue 26-inch Schwinn mountain bike. These messages were sent on October 10, 2022. The forensic analysts confirmed that they were sent from Tim Bleefnick's cell phone. Two days later, Tim Bleefnick messages a different seller under his personal profile on Facebook, this time regarding the sale of a black mongoose bicycle. According to the witness, Tim did in fact purchase that bike. You might be asking yourself at this point what a man approaching his 40s is doing looking for used bicycles on Marketplace. Well, we can assure you they weren't for his children, and these messages specifically will wind up being a crucial piece of evidence in this case later on. Investigators also spoke with Melissa Young, a friend of Rebecca's who she'd been texting with about the ongoing divorce. Melissa told authorities that on January 5th, 2023, she ran into Rebecca at a local TJ Maxx. She said Rebecca seemed visibly stressed while the two chatted about the separation. At one point, Rebecca told Melissa that she feared Tim could, quote, snap at any moment. Rebecca also confided in her friend that Tim had recently threatened her and said something to the effect of, You'll be dead before you get any of my money. That same month, Rebecca vehemently rejected Tim's proposal of a 60-40 parenting split in his favor. His proposal also included no child support from his end and decreased alimony payments. Tim later agreed to splitting even custody of the children, but under one condition. Rebecca would have to undergo a psychological evaluation, when by all accounts, it seems as though it should have been the other way around. After interviewing Tim's neighbors, investigators learned that he approached a man who lived next door to him on Hampshire Street. This was just weeks after Rebecca met her friend at the TJ Maxx. According to the neighbor, Tim allegedly asked the man if he had any security cameras in his backyard, which of course came off as a pretty weird thing to be concerned with. Less than a month later, the same month Rebecca was murdered, Tim phoned the Quincy police himself. The call was made on February 10, 2023. Apparently, he had a change of heart and wanted to return the long-lost 9mm handgun to Rebecca. During that call, he asked authorities if they would assist him in the transaction. Tim claims that he didn't want any trouble and figured this was the best way to deliver the weapon rather than doing so unsupervised. For whatever reason, the police denied Tim's request and did not aid him in returning the firearm. As the deep dive into both Rebecca and Tim's digital history continued, investigators also noticed that Rebecca's text messages became even more dire. One in particular that stood out perhaps the most was one she sent to her sister Sarah. If something ever happens to me, please make sure the number one person of interest is Tim, as that is who would do something to me. I'm putting this in writing that I'm fearful he will somehow harm me, come after me, or will try to do something to me that takes away from the kids or takes the kids away from me. Rebecca Bleefnick's wake was held on Thursday, March 2, 2023 in Quincy, the same day the final divorce hearing was supposed to take place. Rebecca had witnesses scheduled to testify and was prepared to do so herself. But instead of finalizing the custody of their children or marital assets including the family home, Rebecca Bleefnick was laying in a casket at a funeral home on Broadway Street. Tim was in attendance at the wake. At the funeral held the following day, however, he simply made an appearance but decided to leave early. Later that day, the local news reporters staked out in front of his home and snapped photographs of the disheveled man on his front porch, wearing sweatpants while the rest of Rebecca's loved ones were attending her burial. Besides his bizarre behavior and questionable digital paper trail, there was much more evidence implicating Tim Bleefnick in his wife's murder. 
That information, however, would not be revealed until trial. But for now, the authorities had more than enough to take him into custody. And less than a month after Rebecca was found shot to death in her upstairs bathroom, her estranged husband was arrested at his home on March 13, 2023. 39-year-old Timothy Bleefnik was then charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of home invasion. Lead prosecutor Josh Jones with the state's attorney's office held a press conference that very same day announcing this major development. Every victim of domestic violence deserves to be seen, to be heard, and to be believed. The state's attorney's office of Adams County and its prosecutors and staff are dedicated to the pursuit of justice for every victim. While our thoughts and prayers are with Rebecca Bleefnick's family and her children, our focus and our efforts remain on bringing her murderer to justice. Timothy Bleefnick was held in the Adams County Jail without bond. He eventually pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder, but unlike the divorce proceedings, his trial surprisingly got underway rather quickly. Jury selection began on May 22, 2023, less than a month after Bleefnick's arrest. In May of 2021, she told another friend that the only way the defendant had to make sure that their three boys chose him over her was to eliminate her as a choice. You'll hear from other friends who will tell you that Becky said the same thing or similar things to them, that she told them that if anything ever happened to her, it was the defendant that did it, that the defendant told her she wasn't going to get away with his money, and that the defendant told her he was tired of playing her stupid little games. Those stupid little games were said to be in reference to more than just a custody battle over the children. According to the state, money was another significant motive in this homicide. It came out in court that Tim had allegedly been hiding assets, as well as potentially underreporting his income prior to the divorce. While finances, text messages, and testimony from Rebecca Bleefnick's friends and family were all instrumental in the prosecution's case, as we mentioned earlier, there was even more damning evidence against the defendant for the jury to consider. When the autopsy photos were shown, some grimaced and looked away, while Timothy Bleefnick was seen wiping away tears as his estranged wife's bullet-ridden body was showcased on the projector. In the grand scheme of things, however, this display of emotion wouldn't mean much at all in the eyes of the jury. Remember the Facebook bicycles that John Smith purchased? Well, four days after Rebecca was killed, police discovered an abandoned blue 26-inch Schwinn bicycle. This was believed to be the same bike Timothy Bleefnick inquired about from the online listing some four months before the murder. That bicycle was found discarded behind the Quincy Public Schools bus barn, approximately 0.9 miles from the victim Rebecca Bleefnick's home. The key detail is that that bicycle didn't have reflectors on it when the authorities located it. Why? Because the seller of that blue Schwinn testified in court that the bicycle he sold didn't have any reflectors on it to begin with. The man went on to say that he sold the Schwinn to a man with long brown hair, who had an athletic build and stood just a few inches shorter than him. For reference here, the man who sold the bicycle stands a towering 6 foot 7 inches tall, and Timothy Bleefnick, 6 foot 3 inches. The seller also testified that John Smith, the man who bought the bike, drove a rust-orange-colored Honda CRV. And wouldn't you know it, Timothy Bleefnick also happened to drive a rust-orange-colored Honda CRV. The prosecution also provided evidence that at one point during the divorce, Tim attempted to wipe his phone clean via a factory reset. The defendant's work laptop was also admitted into evidence, as well as his cell phone. And his Google searches prior to his wife's murder included some of the following. How to pick locks. How to open windows from the outside. How to clean gunshot residue from a smoking gun. How to trace shotgun rounds fired from a specific gun. How to force open my door with a crowbar. Can I force open my door with a crowbar if I lock myself out? How can I check if a gun is registered to me? Does my whoop record the exact times I wear it? Can you just wash off gunpowder residue? How to make a homemade pistol silencer. Not really leaving much to the imagination there, are you, Tim? The jury was also shown photographs found on that laptop. 
They were pictures of the defendant firing a CZ-75 9mm handgun. During the search of Tim's home, investigators located disposable gloves, large plastic Aldi shopping bags, a mongoose bicycle in the garage with a flat tire, and several rounds of both spent and live ammunition. They also found numerous crowbars in the garage, one of which was sent to the crime lab. In addition, the prosecution went on to inform the jury of some rather prudent information. 54 shell casings were found in Tim Bleefnick's basement. And of those 54, 27 of them were exact matches to the eight casings found at the crime scene, all of which were 9mm. The defense contested, however, pointing out that no fingerprints were found on any shell casings at the scene. On the second-story window the killer entered through, or any of the shell casings, handguns, or magazines recovered from the defendant's property. But yet another aspect of this crime working in Timothy Bleefnick's favor was the muddy shoe print found inside of Rebecca's home. When you were provided with that shoe print, did you make any notice anything about it? Um, I received a, a piece of carpet with a left partial footwear impression on it. Well, when you say partial, what does that mean? Partial shoe print. Um, that the shoe print was not complete, that it did not go from um, toe to heel and was not complete. It only showed the toe and the arch area. Because of that, because you did not have a, have a complete heel, is it limited in what you can do? Yes, it is. So, for example, if I ask you to tell me what size that shoe print was, can you do that? I cannot. Ultimately, the shoe print was inconclusive, and the forensic specialist who tested the print couldn't say one way or the other if it belonged to Timothy Bleefnick. But perhaps most notable for the defense, Timothy Bleefnick's DNA could not be definitively identified from any of the samples taken from the crime scene, including from the door handles, the patio chair, or the plastic found on and near her body. And despite retrieving another DNA sample from beneath her fingernails, one that, according to the forensic scientist who testified on the stand, supported a potential contribution from Tim Bleefnick, his children couldn't be ruled out as possible contributors. It was one evidentiary dead end after another. In addition, a forensic scientist confirmed that no shell casings found in the victim's residence could be traced back to any unsolved crimes in the area. And perhaps most concerning of all is that the murder weapon was never found in this case. And as far as the crowbar, the marks were consistent with tools found in the defendant's garage. However, none of those tools could be definitively linked back to Tim Bleefnick, not even the one crime scene technicians had confidently sent to the crime lab for further processing. For these reasons, the defense claimed that the case against their client was, quote, dripping with reasonable doubt. Unfortunately for Tim, the state didn't need to produce a murder weapon, fingerprints, or even DNA to convict him of homicide. If you can believe it, there was even more evidence against this man, and perhaps the most condemning of all occurred on February 14th, 21st, 22nd, and the 23rd, the very day of the murder. On February 14th, roughly one week before Rebecca was killed, Tim Bleefnick's Whoop fitness tracker and cell phone both powered off at 12 a.m., CCTV footage from that same day was presented in court. According to that video footage, a man is shown riding his bicycle past the Quincy Public School bus barn and then by a residence located on South 20th Street before turning back around between 12 a.m. and 1 a.m. The house where the cyclist was seen passing is approximately 0.7 miles or about a four-minute bike ride to 2528 Kentucky Road, the victim Rebecca Bleefnick's home. The prosecution alleged that this was a practice run by the defendant, and the first of several. Minutes later, Rebecca's neighbor received a security alert from his home security system. The footage shows a tall individual walking up and down his driveway before disappearing into the night. Then from 1.10 to 1.30 a.m., the forensic extraction from Tim's laptop showed the keywords, quote, license plate lookup. Title, registration lookup, VIN check lookup, and vehicle records were all searched. In the span of 38 minutes, approximately 200 internet searches of the like were also made. Of those searches was Ted Johnson's VIN and license plate number. 
Who was Ted Johnson, you may ask? Well, that was Rebecca Bleefnick's boyfriend at the time. Moments later, the defendant's whoop our man reconnected at 1.32 a.m. A phone call was then made from Tim's cell phone to the Missouri Department of Revenue, the department that handles vehicle registrations. We're not sure why Tim thought anyone would be working at a state government office at 1.30 in the morning, but I guess that's neither here nor there. You can't fix stupid after all. Rebecca Bleefnick's boyfriend, Ted Johnson, also testified in court. Um, we met, I would say, in probably January of 2022. Um, talked for a while as, as friends and gradually spent more time together and became romantically involved probably the summer of 23. No, sorry, 22. I apologize. Ted expanded on the relationship, but more importantly established that he was present at the home with Rebecca the night that Tim Bleefnick was allegedly stalking out the residence, though he clearly had no idea at the time. Ted went on to say that he left Rebecca's home at around 5.30 a.m. the morning of February 14th. The last time Ted saw Rebecca was when he visited her on the 21st to deliver her some Qdoba, the day after her surgery and two days before her murder. On the stand, Ted explained that he had communicated with Rebecca via text message right up until the 23rd when she stopped responding. At that time, he texted the word Marco, question mark, hoping she would respond Polo, but he never heard from her again. It wasn't until hours later that he was notified by her sister on Facebook that Rebecca had in fact been murdered. But remember, the prosecution alleged the first practice run on February 14th was just that, the first of several. Well, on February 21st, a man on a bicycle was captured yet again on camera, traveling the exact same route at 2.11 a.m., and again the following day in the early morning hours on February 22nd. But before Tim made his second practice run on his bicycle, he sent the following text message to his neighbor Kelly earlier in the afternoon on February 22nd, the day before Rebecca was killed. I'm here solo. Kids are in school, so come on over. The neighbor Kelly also testified in court, admitting that she went over to Tim's house that afternoon for the sole purpose of having sex. She also explained that she and Tim had been involved in an affair for quite some time. This would have meant that Timothy Bleefnick went on not one, not two, but three total dry runs before committing the murder. Allegedly, that is, as it was just a dark, shadowy figure in the night captured on someone's home security system. According to the prosecution, on February 23, 2023, Timothy Bleefnick finally felt confident enough to follow through with his, by then, well-rehearsed plan. On the morning of the murder, Timothy Bleefnick's whoop band disconnected at 12.28 a.m. At 12.55, a surveillance video captured a man riding a bicycle southbound past the Quincy Public School bus bar, and subsequently turning east onto Prairie Street a few minutes later. At approximately 1.11 a.m., Rebecca's cell phone showed that she actually tried to call 911. And then just one minute later at 1.12, her ADT home security system alerted that her front door had been opened. At 1.16 a.m., surveillance shows a cyclist riding northbound this time, back past the Quincy bus bar. Later on that day, just before noon, Timothy Bleefnick called his children's school, alerting the faculty not to allow the boys to walk to their mother's house. Tim Bleefnick then showed up at the school at approximately 1.50 p.m., 57 minutes before school let out for the day. Then at 3.03 p.m., he texted Rebecca's father, asking him if he could call Rebecca, claiming that the school had called him, claiming Rebecca failed to pick the boys up, despite him having arrived early, completely unsolicited. A half hour later, Rebecca's father visited her residence on Kentucky Road, only to find her lifeless body there in the upstairs bathroom. After only a six-day trial and roughly four hours of deliberation, the jury returned their verdict on May 31st, 2023. We, the jury, find the defendant, Timothy Bleefnick, guilty of home invasion signed by the four-person and 11 jurors. 
We, the jury, find the defendant, Timothy Bleefnick, guilty of first-degree murder, signed by the four-person and 11 jurors. Ahead of sentencing, victim impact statements were read aloud in court. Rebecca's loved ones expressed the great pain they had endured due to the selfish acts of her estranged, soon-to-be ex-husband. Former hometown hero turned killer, 39-year-old Timothy Bleefnick. I can find no explanations in a normal world for such monstrous behavior, except that these actions were those of a despicable, conniving, totally self-centered and greedy narcissist. Rebecca's mother, Bernie, also shared her grief with the court. On February 23rd, your actions spoke to your true self, to the lie that you had been living. On that day, you proved that you didn't reject Satan, but embraced him. You once again looked into Becky's eyes, but instead of holding her hand, you shot 14 bullets into her body, and you left her dying on the floor like a wounded animal, the mother of your sons. The woman who you no longer loved as a spouse, but who you, in your divorce proceedings, you agreed to respect as your co-parent, so your boys could grow up learning the lessons of compromise, open-mindedness, and forgiveness, so they could witness courage during difficult times. Instead, they now see a coward for a father. Rebecca's sister Sarah spoke as well, her eyes shifting between the pages of thoughts she'd prepared, and back to the man now convicted of killing her only sibling, her sister Rebecca. Becky's death was gruesome, painful, and senseless. You wanted her to suffer. You probably wanted all who loved her to suffer. And if that is the case, you succeeded. Losing Becky in any other way, infection, cancer, or a car accident, would have been tragic, heartbreaking, and agonizing. But this, imagining her fear, imagining her begging for her life, begging for her children, imagining her there, lying on the floor of her bathroom, paralyzed, struggling to breathe, and bleeding from 14 bullet wounds, praying to God in her last moments of consciousness to keep Deacon, Grayson, and Arlen safe from you. It's all unbearable. It is an invisible noose strangling our souls, manifesting in my own physical pain and emotional anguish. It is moments of crying so hard I throw up and waking up sweating from nightmares. It is the anger I feel leaving my daughter's room after she wakes up from a panic attack at night, scared because of you, that an intruder will break into our own home. On August 11, 2023, the judge informed Timothy Bleefnick of his fate. He was asked if he'd like to make a statement of his own and declined. The judge then went on to remind him of his horrific actions one last time. Mr. Bleefnick, you researched this murder. You planned this murder. You practiced this murder. You broke into her house. And you shot her. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen times. I don't know how long it took you to do that. Some of those shots were fired while she was lying on the ground. And you did all of that while your children were upstairs at your house, lying snug in their beds. The court believes that the appropriate sentence for each of the two counts of first-degree murder would be natural life in prison. And with that, Timothy Bleefnick was officially sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of his estranged wife, 41-year-old Rebecca Bleefnick. Following the guilty verdict, now convicted murderer Timothy Bleefnick 
was removed from his former university's Football Hall of Fame in June of 2023. It's amazing that a man with such promise and someone who seemed like a decent individual, at least on the surface, turned out to be one of the most despicable human beings the state of Illinois has ever seen. Not to mention, this may very well be one of the most egregious murders we've ever covered. The sheer carelessness for covering his tracks speaks to Timothy Bleefnik's stupidity, his egocentric psyche, or perhaps both. The convicted murderer's half-hearted planning of this crime can be explained in one word. Whoops. Just like the name of his fitness tracker. The same one that coincidentally powered off each time he conducted both the dry and final runs of this evil, cold-hearted, and cold-blooded killing. After the sentencing, one of Rebecca's friends, Christy Krause, spoke with Fox News. She said she never once saw this coming and was still in complete shock that Timothy Bleefnik could ever resort to murder. When we knew Tim and, and Becky, that was when they had gotten engaged, getting married, and it was a very happy time in their life. And, you know, no, I would have never thought that Tim could do something like this. You know, we had noticed, you know, in the last couple years that his appearance had drastically changed, and we knew that him and Becky had separated. But, I mean, I would have never, you know, I she reached out to people saying that she was scared, but knowing her, you know, in 2008 and nine. You would have never thought, I mean, they were, they seemed to be like the perfect family. Rebecca Bernadette Postal Bleefnik was better known as Becky. She was an incredibly smart woman, dating back to her time at Quincy Notre Dame High School, where she graduated at the head of her class and was named valedictorian. At Quincy University, she graduated cum laude with a bachelor's degree in biological sciences and a minor in chemistry. She later worked as a top-performing pharmaceutical sales rep, before eventually moving on to become a nurse. She was loved by many and is remembered as a compassionate, nurturing mother who loved her boys more than life itself. Her three children, ages 6, 10, and 12, are now being raised by Rebecca's parents. We can only hope they will one day learn to live and cope with the soul-crushing trauma their father has so selfishly burdened them with. Rebecca's friend Christy says she hasn't spoken with the family since the trial, but she wishes the boys nothing but the best moving forward, and that she hopes they find peace as they grow. My thoughts and prayers go out to them. These three boys have lost both of their parents. It's heartbreaking to know what they have to go through for the rest of their life, that their father killed their mother. And, you know, all I can continue to do is pray for them and hopefully offer happy memories from the past of their wonderful mother who was just brilliant and beautiful and caring and just an all-around great person. 